right. Well, good morning again. It's great to have you all here this morning. Ah, I don't know who's ordered all the heat, but stop it. It's too hot for me. I know. I'm praying for snow again, so can't wait. Can't wait for that snow to start flying. Well, as you may or may not know, uh, we have been going through Colossians, and uh, we got through the first two chapters at a pretty speedy rate, and then we have slowed down. The Lord has slowed us down in chapter 3, and I, uh, He's got a purpose. Uh, he has purposely slowed us so that we can walk very uh, patiently and slowly through um, the book of Colossians, but specifically chapter 3 as Uh, And I just have found it interesting as we've discussed different aspects of chapter 3. Some of you have come up to me each week and been like, man, this this thing really had, that was for me this week. Um, And another conversation this morning, uh, somebody who uh, the Lord had something for him last week in last week's sermon. So um, just awesome encouragement that, because I've never, uh, in all my life of preaching, I've never gone this slow through a portion of Scripture. So I'm just glad that God is in it and He's doing things through it. And um, I hope that you are still uh, taking the time each morning to just very quickly or some, sometime throughout the day read through the chapter that we're discussing each week. And if you have, then you've really been marinating for a while in chapter 3. It takes, I don't know, like three minutes maybe to read through chapter 3. It's, it's not that long. It's taken us four weeks to preach through it, but uh, it'll probably end up being five or six by the time we finish with it. But um, really, it takes about three minutes to read through it. But there's so much in here that we need to stop. If, if nothing else, uh, hopefully this has uh, encouraged you to realize that when you read through Scripture, how necessary it is to not just read through it with the goal of getting through the, the chapter, or getting through the portion that you're reading, but really studying, diving in, and, and trying to learn as much uh, as you can about what God is trying to teach us through it. So uh, what I want to do before we really dive in this morning is recap. I want to read through the first 13 verses, and then we'll move on from there. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual morality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. That's as far as we've gotten in four weeks. So, uh, 
I, I just thought, and I, I did want to just reiterate, um, because I think there are some, definitely some themes that the Lord has, has put its finger on here, um, the idea of these sinful earthly things. I don't know about you, but man, it's really been setting into my life as I've thought about um, what are the sinful earthly things, and that, that idea of lurking, that things will just wait, things of the enemy will wait uh, for an, to ambush us at the worst possible moment. If you've, if you've never had a moment where like all the stress of your life waited for the worst possible time to ambush ambush you, like whether it was with your kids or with your spouse or, you know, at work and you blew up on the wrong person or you, you know, you yelled at your kids for absolutely no reason. And you're like, man, where did that, where did that come from? Oh, that was waiting to ambush you. And so um, that, that has, uh, for me, definitely been a, a awesome. But then, you know, even just this last week talking about the, the positive things that Paul uh, brings forward in, in verse 12. Uh, was it verse... 12. Yeah, just want to make sure I got the verses right. Um, and just how, how they all went together um, with, with one another and how they both dealt with our approach to people, but also our response to people. We are responsible for the way that we respond to people. Um, and we have to not just pat ourselves on the back because we approach people in humility and with kindness, but we also need to respond. Regardless of how they act, we should respond in a way that reflects Christ. So as we continue, uh, I want to open up in verse 14 and uh, continue our study through Colossians chapter 3. So verse 14 says, Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Now, I wanted to recap because I wanted us to really gather and understand what Paul is really saying here. Because he says, above all, so all the stuff that we've talked about, everything that he's been presenting. And remember, uh, Paul did not write uh, Colossians as, okay, chapter 1, and then he began to write. We did that later. We came up with the whole chapters and verses and things after that. So Paul's just writing a letter. And he gets to this point. He says, above all, clothe yourselves with love. Wouldn't it be amazing to describe your church family as perfect harmony. Like if people ask you, like, so like, where, where do you go to church? I go to Dubois Alliance. Uh, and you say, okay, what, what's it like? And you said, well, let me just tell you. Perfect harmony. It would be great. I don't think we're there yet. Uh, but man, wouldn't it be awesome? Uh, and, I, and I don't want to downplay how awesome this church is and what God is doing here. But wouldn't that be great to be able to say, man, my church, we have this. There's just this harmony that takes place in, in this fellowship of believers. Uh, none of us are perfect. We've, we're a bunch of messed up people, but we come together, and there's just this perfect harmony that will exist. Paul, Paul is very clear. It will require us to put on the new nature. It's definitely a theme, especially in chapter 3 that Paul is talking about here, that there's this old nature and there's this new nature. And the whole point of this sermon series is for us to realize that too often as Christians, we continue to operate from the old life toolbox when we have been given a whole new set and God has actually told us, throw all the old stuff away None of it is useful in the new life that I have for you. Some of it might look similar, but you've got to relearn everything because the center of our universe has changed. It went from being us and our desires and our pleasure to now it's Christ. And that's just a whole new way to do everything. And we have to relearn that. To clothe ourselves with love above all else. And as we talked about last week, uh, Sometimes, uh, I don't know if you've ever had that experience where it's, maybe it's a new uniform for me. Uh, in my first job as a pastor, I had to wear a suit and tie every day. And for, so tying a tie 
was like a learned practice. Learning to clothe myself with that whole get-up and attire uh, was difficult. I also didn't fit into the suit that I had, so that made it even more fun and difficult. But uh, uh, it was very difficult to do that. But over time, uh, I got better at it. I was able to dress myself quicker. Uh, I learned just don't untie the tie the week before, and man, life was so much better. Um, but it, it got easier. And as we practice these uh, attributes, as we continue to clothe ourselves in this way, uh, you'll find it's easier and easier. And you can even do it when your coworker is being a very unkind person and being a certain way to you where you would normally act out of anger, frustration, whatever, you can find you can act out of humility and patience with them. Why? Because now you're able to put uh, those things on even in adversity. But if you don't learn to put them on when things are going well, when everything's positive, eh, you're not going to have any chance probably of putting them on when things are bad. So my question is, as Paul's talking about here, he says, uh, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Okay, so if the ideal is to bind ourselves in love, and we're not quite there yet, what binds us together here as a faith community? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What binds us together? It, I mean, the Sunday school answer is what? Jesus. Good. Okay, you guys all went to Sunday school. Good. Uh, that's the Sunday school answer. We're all here because of Jesus. But let's be honest, how many of you hang out with everybody from the church? Okay, no, you don't. You have specific circles, and, and, and that's totally natural and okay that we have certain groups that we uh, naturally will hang out with and things like that. But what binds us together as a community? If, if Paul is saying that love should bind us together, that's what we should clothe ourselves with, and that's what should bind us together, then I think he's pretty much acknowledging that while Jesus is what kind of the overarching umbrella that binds us together, there are other things that will bind us, that will bind church communities together, and the one that we should strive for is love. I think another way to look at this, for me, as I was processing through this, is why do some people leave churches? Maybe not looking at it as, why are we here, but why do people leave churches? Well, some of the reasons, I think, are because they don't like the new music. I know that was a, a big deal um, in many churches over the last 30, 40 years. Maybe because they don't like the pastor's preaching style or the way he dresses. Um, I've, I've experienced it that some people think that, oh, well, like when a pastor is transitioning, as soon as he leaves, that's when a lot of people leave the church. But it's usually not until the new pastor gets there, and then people start to leave because they don't like the way the new pastor does something. Maybe it's because they don't like some other decision about some preference they have in the church, and so they leave. To me, that tells me what bound that person to that church, because they felt unbound when that thing was no longer present, when that, whatever, if it was a preference or whenever it was something that they valued was no longer present, they no longer felt bound to that body of believers, and so that's why they would leave. I don't think anybody would leave a group if they still felt bound by something that continued to draw them together. In my experience as a pastor, it's pretty rare to see someone leave a church because of a theological issue. Because, well, that church started believing this, and so I left because I didn't agree with that belief. Now, 
There are a lot of denominations right now that are wrestling through different things. I know people that are dealing with denominations wrestling with uh, certain things in, our, in the current culture, and there are people leaving churches over that. For sure, those are theological issues that they have, and they're leaving because of that. Um, the Christian Missionary Alliance, if you didn't know, that's our denomination. We're not non-denominational. We are Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, they're not dealing with those. Uh, right now, we're not making big decisions on any of those things. We're staying true to who we've been for a long time. So theologically, we've not changed. Uh, but Paul is saying here it should be love which binds us together. So barring theological problems, um, it shouldn't be our common interest in music, preaching styles, or the colors of the curtains. That's not what should bind us together. But if someone leaves because of those things, then that's very clear that's what bound them to that church. That preference, having that met, is what brought them and kept them. And when it wasn't there, it's why they departed. Too often, when people are church shopping, um, I don't know if you've ever done that as a, as a person, you've ever church shopped. Um, I know uh, I don't like the term, but um, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to go to churches to experience what do they have, what's the culture they're like, what, you know, what's going on with this church, they want to get to know them, that's totally okay. But when they're doing that, my experience with that is they're not, they're not seeking to find a church that they feel bound through love to that church. Too often when we church shop, we seek for churches that meet our preferences. These are my list of preferences, and this is what I'm looking for. And do you, do you offer basically the services that I'm looking for? Um, I, don't, I, I think I've shared this before. I had a really cool conversation in one church where when I think it was when I was in Morgantown and a couple called, and the normal conversation is, hey, we're new to town. We want to come to your church. We just want to know what do you offer? answered that question multiple times to multiple people. Um, and this couple was different. It kind of threw me for a loop. I had to ask them to repeat themselves because they said, okay, we're new to town. We're looking for a church. We just want to know how can we serve your church? I was like, whoa, that's a, that's a different question. I'm not sure I know how to answer this. Hold on, just let me meditate on this moment for, for just a second. And they legitimately wanted to know. They said, well, this, this is how God's gifted us. And do you have any places available to serve in, in those capacities. I thought, I just told him, I said, listen, I, this is a totally different conversation for me. I'm not used to this kind of thing because this is, is a cool conversation to have. But they were looking, they wanted to serve the Lord and they were looking for a place to serve the Lord. But again, when, when you came to Dubois Alliance for the first time, were you looking for a church that met the preferences you had predetermined were for you or was it, do I feel bound by love to this group of people? It's one of the reasons why I think it's super important that uh, when uh, we have someone who's visiting with us, we, we get to know them. It's not just about like, hey, where do you work? Uh, what's your name? Um, do you have any kids? Those kind of you know, basic questions. But like, are, can, are we, is God trying to bind us together through love? Is that something that's occurring here? And it's not going to happen to everybody. And that's, like, I'm totally okay if, like, we see a couple that comes to church and then, like, later this week I see them in town and they're like, yeah, we're not going to go to your church. That's okay. I'm really honestly perfectly okay with that because I want them to be bound in, through love, not bound because, oh, well, my preaching is so good or so terrible, uh, however you want to look at that. Or they thought the music was phenomenal or whatever it was. I want them to feel like God brought them here. And, and if you've done membership with me, you know I'm very passionate about this. I don't want anybody here who doesn't feel called by the Lord. Because if he calls you here, 
There's a reason. There's a purpose. He has you here. It's not to warm a pew. Pews are warm enough. Everything in this church is warm enough. Trust me. Uh, He's called you here because he's got a purpose. And that purpose is his, and he wants to do something through you. Each of us has been called. Um, Again, one of my other big passion slash pet peeves is uh, when people say that I was called to full-time ministry. No, we've all been called to full-time ministry. To be a Christian is to be called to full-time ministry. Thankfully, I get to do it vocationally, and not all of us do, but we're all called full-time to be believers and to, to serve the Lord. I know that many of you, uh, many of us in this church, are bound to do Boys Alliance because of love. Because I want to be honest for a moment. Uh, as you know, that's pretty much my only capacity. Um, I don't like to fluff or, or tell lies. There have been a lot of tough changes. I, what, I mean, do you realize that I've almost been here for four years now? That's a long time. That's four years. Uh, I've almost been here for four years, and we've had some tough changes. Some things have happened, some changes, some new things have come about. Uh, and I know that some of the decisions uh, of things that have changed have created some significant tension for some of you. You've talked to me about it. We've dialogued about some of the changes and the tension that you felt because of those things. I know that I've also messed up a lot of things. I, one of the things I told you when I first came here was, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm literally figuring this out as I go. Uh, And unfortunately, you've had to experience some of those pains as I've tried to figure out. uh, And I do have an update on that. I still have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, So I just want to make sure that you're completely aware of that. Uh, And I know, but I know, like, on a serious way, I know I've messed things up. I've not had the conversations I should have with certain people. I've not spoken a certain way to some of you. Uh, I've forgotten entirely to call some of you or talk to you about something or visit you in a a time frame, and yet you're here. You still call this place home. Not because your preferences are being met. Not because you're bound uh, to this church because you think I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. You're bound here because of love. And that's encouraging for me to know that the Lord has brought you here and you feel called to be a part of this family, not because of the current circumstances, not because your preferences are being met, not because there's no tension between you and what God is doing here, but because you feel called, and that's encouraging to me as a pastor. The more that we all begin to grow and adopt that mentality of, I'm here because God's called me. And if I begin to get upset with somebody or something, then that's the Lord taking me through something. And I'm going to face that head on. Instead of running off to, the, to a church that I don't have that tension anymore, I'm going to engage that tension and walk through that because I'm bound here through love. The more we can adopt that mentality as a church, my belief is that's the closer we're going to get to perfect harmony. But perfect harmony is not just when we all agree because we've all, uh, we, all had, we all started with the same preferences. That's not how it works. If uh, any of you have been married, again, for more than 10 minutes, you realize perfect harmony in a marriage is not finding somebody that agrees with you on everything because that person doesn't exist. Perfect harmony is learning how to walk through conflict and tension together, how to deal with the tough times when they come, how to have conversation and communication about things and work through problems. That's where harmony comes from. When you see a couple, uh, and I know I'm just pointing you guys out because you're sitting there, like the Flanders who still love each other and have been loving each other for many, many years, they're not going to tell you, well, it's because we've never argued in our entire life. Everything has gone smoothly and uh, 
Ken might tell you that, but uh, no. Uh, <laughs> it's because they've worked through it. They're, they're masters of how, of how to work through conflict and get through tough times. If you want to know how to do that, talk to somebody like that. That's how we will achieve perfect harmony in our family is, is learning to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. I, I had one of these conversations recently with one of you, and we talked, and we had a beautiful time of conversation, and it was great. I learned something. You, 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 I hope you were blessed by that conversation, but uh, I know I, I'm constantly learning. Like I said, I'm, this is my, my learning process is unfortunately failing a lot and then learning from those failures, but I'm grateful for a church that feels bound together through love, and I hope that we continue to, to walk in that and grow in that as well. Moving on, I know, shocking, to the next verse, verse 15, Colossians 3.15 says, And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. So this led me to my first question when I read through this verse and, and kind of uh, was studying it was, what does rule in our hearts? Again, same, same, kind of same as before. If we're to be bound together in love, then if we're not bound together in love in, in, in a perfect way, then what are we bound by? So in this verse it says, then let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. Okay, if, if the peace of Christ is supposed to rule in our hearts and it's not happening perfectly, then what is ruling our hearts? What rules our hearts? Well, one of the main things a ruler does is he makes final, he or she makes the final decision on matters of the kingdom. They bring these things, whether it's a president or a king, especially back in the days when this was written, the king and queen uh, uh, idea was very easy for them to accept. So ruling, man, you got the final decision. You got the final say on something. So what makes the final decision for us? When we're weighing out decisions in our life, what makes the final decision? The peace of Christ or the pursuit, or the pursuit of our kingdom? It, if it is Christ who rules in our hearts, then every decision is made by Him and for Him. If it is us that rules our hearts, then every decision is made by us and for us. If it is our family... Who rules our hearts. Every decision is made by our family and for our family. If it is our job who rules our hearts, every decision is made by our job and for our job. You get what I'm saying here? Many of us, I think, probably can resonate with the reality that there are different times in our life where different things have sat on the throne of our hearts. Sometimes it's been our job. That's been what made the decisions in our life. It made the decisions of how we spent our time, how we spent our money, where we lived. There are other times where our family, it was our, our focus, and we know people, and whether it's you or not, uh, I'm sure you can identify there are people where it's like everything is about family. That's what makes the final decision for them. It's, it's their nuclear family. They do everything for them or whatever it is. Some people just live for themselves. It's all about them and their kingdom and, and what, uh, what they want out of life and what they want to achieve and success and, and fame and whatever else it is. You see the pattern that happens. So when we're honest with ourselves, we ask ourselves that question, who or what makes the final decision for us? When we're wrestling through something in life, who or what gets the final say? As we weigh out options, if we're 
looking at a job change, if we're looking at uh, moving or whatever, a transition in life or any, any big decision, what gets that final say? Now, I can't obviously answer that question for you. Only you can. It's something I just want you to mull over as you process Colossians chapter 3. It's no wonder the church can find itself so divided if the members do not all serve the same kingdom, but each serve their own kingdom. If we're each going our own way, seeking our own glory and our own kingdom and our own everything, then it's no wonder why we come together and we say, uh, we read all these verses about unity and about perfect harmony, and we strive toward it, and we still don't make any progress. I'm not saying that is us, but I'm saying churches, uh, this is why it just doesn't seem to, to work, because we all need to serve one kingdom that's similar to what should unite us through love is Christ. And we should all be working toward His kingdom. And when we do all work toward His kingdom, it's amazing how much unity is found there as we all, but we, we all do it in our own unique way. And so we have to do it with humility as well. And all this stuff starts to come together because even if you have the same goal, have you ever done a project with your spouse and it's gone absolutely into a train wreck? You had the same goal, you just had a very different way to achieve that goal. No, I'm the only one. Jackie and I are the only ones that ever have that happen. Okay, good. Good to know. Uh, we got some work, I guess. Uh, I think you've probably experienced that. Just because we have the same goal, just because God's kingdom is what we all want most in life, doesn't mean that we're all gonna, it's all going to be hunky-dory as we do that. We're also going to have some tensions, and humility needs to be found in all of those things. But if we're all going toward our own kingdom, how much more divided we'll be as a church. Also notice that Paul's almost out of place command to be thankful there at the end. It almost seems like, whoa, that was like a change in gears there. It's all about let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. But I would argue it's not nearly as out of place as it seems. Paul's helping us find the remedy for unrest for a lack of peace in our lives. When we're experiencing anxiety or a lack of peace, it's fear which currently rules on our heart in that moment, not Christ. There's no path where Christ rules in our hearts and we're racked with fear or anxiety about something. We've had Christ step off and we've put our problem on the throne in that moment. Uh, I was reading a book. I'm still going through this book, um, but I was reading it this past week, and uh, it's a book by Paul David Tripp called Dangerous Callings, and I just want to read you a quote from it because it really resonated with this for me. It says, the fact of the matter is that we find questions of the future hard to deal with because we find it difficult to trust God. The one that we have said we've put our trust in knows everything about the future because he controls every aspect of it. Our fear of the future exposes the struggle we have to trust Him and in trusting Him to rest in His guidance and care, even though we don't really know what is coming next. And just as, as I've been going through this, I, I hit that this past week, and I was like, man, I, I'm really resonating with this because it's so true. It's so, so obvious that when we're dealing with anxiety, when we're struggling with, some, with something that's coming up and we don't know what's going to happen or how it's going to work out, we've basically just stared at the problem so long that it has become so large and God has become smaller. And the longer, and, and, and it's just one of the realities that whatever we focus on is going to get bigger and bigger. If it's God, then He'll grow and grow in our mind and the problem will shrink and it'll shrink. But if we focus on the problem, then it'll grow and grow and God will shrink and shrink and shrink in our mind. 
And all of a sudden, the problem's so big that what could ever happen with this problem? We just need to focus on God. And it's, it's really a trust in God. It's letting God, Christ sit on the throne of our hearts and then trusting that He's got it under control and not trying to jump in the driver's seat and take over because we're just not sure where He's going with something. And so Paul is saying here, thankfulness is the best tool we have to remind ourselves of the ways that God has proven Himself faithful in our lives. So he's telling us, let let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, and thankfulness is one of the best tools to make that happen. If you make it a part of your every day to stop and count the reasons you have to be grateful and to be thankful for all the things that God has done, my guess is anxiety will find it much more difficult to rule your heart. Anxiety will struggle a lot more to get control because you're spending so much time being grateful and being thankful and being reminded that, man, God has always shown up. And often when He shows up, He decides He's going to show off. He's going to do things even beyond what we asked of Him. When we have thankful hearts, we can be sure that peace will be found in that place of thankfulness. Verse 16 says, let the message about Christ in all its, rich, its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. Over the past year, it's been a, a theme that God has been pointing out to me uh, personally to become better at preaching the gospel to myself. And when I first interacted with this idea, I'm like, I don't, I don't really understand, like, I know Christ as Savior. Why would I need to preach the gospel to myself? uh, And if one of the things you need to understand about me is I need to really understand and and agree with the concept in order to like to be able to move forward with it. Like mentally, I have to. And so I wrestled with this. And God has just been really, really working on me as a pastor. For me, it's second nature to hear the problems of others uh, in in your lives in light of the gospel. Like, you tell me a problem, and I immediately interpret it through the filter of the gospel. Okay, what is God trying to do here? Like, what what does God have to say about this? What is the gospel? What's the power of the gospel in this situation? And just honestly, like, as a pastor, for me, it's harder to see my problems that way and to see the things going on in my life. It's like when Killian is staring at me dead-eyed and saying no, that he's not going to do something I'm telling him to do, it's harder to see that through the light of the gospel than when you tell me that your kid is being obstinate and is not doing what he, you, know, you ask him to do. It's like, oh, well, this is what Jesus has to say about that. Uh, in the moment, I don't think, what does Jesus have to say about this, Killian? I think I am going to take you to a room where no one can see and, or hear you, and I'm going to spank your butt. Uh, so it's just harder to think of my problems, my things, in light of the gospel and preach the gospel to myself. And so this is just a journey I've been on. I find it much easier to preach the gospel to others than to myself. So Paul's encouragement here, it it hits home for me because when he says, let the message about Christ in all its fullness fill your lives, he says. In all its fullness, fill your lives. This doesn't mean, and this, you might disagree with this, and I'm okay with that. This doesn't mean read your Bible so you feel better about your circumstances. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's also not saying, this doesn't mean hang out with godly people so they will remind you that God is in control of your out-of-control circumstances. It's, um, 
I feel like I don't get through a single sermon without telling you one of my pet peeves. Um, One of the things that bother me about Christian counsel sometimes is when someone presents a problem and the immediate response is, don't you worry, God's God's got it, God's in control. Now, theologically, I agree with that statement. But have you ever found it difficult to connect your circumstance to that statement? Have you ever found it difficult to connect like your completely out of control scenario and circumstance to this like overarching idea that God has got it and he's in control? I have. Maybe I'm the only one that has. What this means though, what Paul is saying here, is to internalize the gospel on a daily basis to the point that it literally fills your life. It's easy to say, God's got this. To me, it's a lot more useful to say, this is your situation. This is what the gospel has to say in regards to that situation. And we filter the scenario, we filter the situation, we filter what's happening through the gospel, through the story about Jesus Christ coming to this earth, God loving us enough to send him, that he died for us, that he rose again. There is so much in there. There is so much to the whole story of the gospel that everything, if filtered through there, man, it changes everything. When you're dealing with an out-of-control circumstance and you don't know if you're going to lose your job this week and you realize that God not only sees yesterday uh, very well, but He sees tomorrow just as well as He sees yesterday, that He's the God of all time, that He, from the very beginning of time, mapped out every aspect of Jesus coming to this earth. He gave prophecy after probably hundreds of prophecies to the point that numerically they cannot calculate the odds that God could accomplish all those things. That's that's one of the things the gospel talks about. And so when you look at your problem in light of the fact that God over thousands of years through genealogies that don't make any sense, people who are messed up and insecure and liars and murderers, that he is able to take this lineage all the way through and, and, and have Jesus come to this earth, and your problem gets pretty small. And you begin to realize, man, that, that idea that God's got this and he's in control, it's a whole lot more tangible now as I pass my problem through this filter of the gospel, and as I preach the gospel to myself. And unfortunately, uh, uh, I have to do this often, and, and I have to constantly remind myself of little aspects of the gospel, even though I've been to Bible college, and I've studied the Bible inside and out, and I've taken fancy courses like hermeneutics uh, and um, those fun things. Still, the basic concepts of the gospel, how they can impact my every day. It's astonishing to me as God has brought me on this journey. The reality that the richness of the gospel is filling my life more than it's ever been filled with those things before is awesome for me. And if it's true for me, I hope it's true for you, that as you uh, begin to preach the gospel to yourself every day, no matter what the situation is, the scenario is, whether it's a positive, a negative, a struggle, a blessing, pass it through the filter of the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Pass everything through it and watch how the richness of the gospel begins to fill your life. When our lives are filled with the richness of the gospel, living out the gospel to those around us, it's, it's no longer a chore. It's not like, okay, I'm going into work. I have to be a Christian. I have to respond to people in a Christian way. Uh, in New Jersey, when I lived there, uh, for the time that God had me, was punishing me, I mean, uh, had me living there, um, I did, uh, cust- not customer service, I did retail 
work in New Jersey. So if you ever want to learn patience, uh, let me recommend you to a place like New Jersey and do retail work where everybody treats you like garbage. Uh, and you have to walk in every day, okay, I love Jesus, I am a Christian, and I must respond to these Jersey people as a Christian would, not as I want to. And uh, honestly, it was a struggle a lot of days. And uh, I, w- I would love to be able to tell you, like, oh, it just naturally flowed from me. Um, what naturally flowed from me is snarkiness. Uh, and some people got to experience that, um, unfortunately, because I uh, fail as being a Christian sometimes. And so that definitely happened. Um, but if we are filled with the richness and the fullness of the gospel, what happens is it's not difficult to do those things. It's not difficult uh, to process what's currently happening through the light and the filter of the gospel. Think about it this way. When you're filled with worry, how difficult is it to operate from an anxious mindset? Not very difficult. It just kind of happens naturally. When you're in a place of anxiety, some of you I know struggle with anxiety. When you're there, uh, is it not like, is it pretty easy to open the fridge and realize you're out of milk and, and like literally break down because of the, you're out of milk? Like everything is passed through a filter of worry and anxiety. When you're filled with grief, how difficult is it to operate from a grief mindset? Everything is viewed. You begin to look at things, your flower dies on the, on the windowsill and you're like, man, life is so short. And it, like, it hits you deeper because you're in a grief mindset. You're, you're, you're being, everything's getting filtered through this idea of like, man, life is short. Life is frail. We've got to make the most of these moments. When we're filled with the gospel, we will find it second nature to operate from a gospel mindset. So what does it look like to live out of a gospel mindset? Well, it's living as if the truth of the gospel, that Jesus has rescued us from the pit of hell, given us a new life, placed his spirit inside us and empowered us to storm the gates of hell, is as real to us today as it was the moment we came to know him as our Savior. Do you remember what it was like, if, you, uh, if you're like me and you came to know Christ a little bit later in life, do you remember what it was like when the truth of the gospel hit you hard and like changed your life, those days, those weeks, those months after you came to know Jesus, what it felt like, the freeness you felt, the the joy you felt. Why? You were filled with the richness of the gospel. You were as filled as you could be in those moments. And so everything, did you not view everything that happened through the filter of the gospel, like everybody needs to know Jesus. Your, your coworker would curse, and you're like, you need Jesus, man. And, and everything just got filtered through that. Everything that happened, you saw it through a gospel filter. Why? You were filled with the richness of the gospel. And unfortunately, over time, I heard, I can't remember who it is now, but they said, we leak. As, un, as imperfect people, we leak the Holy Spirit, we leak the gospel. And so we constantly have to be reiterating those things to us. It's why Paul tells us, be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because we leak. And so we have to constantly be being filled. We have to be filled and then be being filled. And the same is true of the gospel. We were filled with the gospel, but it began to leak. And it became common to us. And so we need to, be, again, be, be filled with the richness of the gospel, be preaching it to ourselves in and out of every circumstance, every day, filling ourselves with the richness of the gospel again. And wouldn't it be great to have that back, that feeling you had, that, that uh, attitude you had when you first came to know Jesus, to have that return to you would be awesome. I don't know if, if it's 
going to happen to that intensity or that newness won't be there necessarily, but being filled with the richness of the gospel will. If our lives are filled with the gospel, we will be able to serve people as guides to Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. When he's talking about teaching and counseling uh, people, that's what it's all about. Whether it's instructing people on their way to Jesus or helping people to navigate their problems and their situations toward Jesus, that's what Paul is saying when he's saying, teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom that he gives. That's how we can do that. This I'm finding out more and more is so much easier when we don't just view the gospel as a tool for others. When we just view the gospel as a tool for people who don't know Jesus. And that can be a mentality of Christians. We say, oh, the gospel is great for those who don't know Jesus. Well, the gospel is good for us too. And we need to preach it to ourselves more than we need to preach it even to those who don't know Jesus. Because if you're trying to give somebody something uh, from an empty cup, you're going to struggle with that. But if you can be filled with the richness of the gospel, then when you encounter somebody who is completely void of the gospel, God can pour that out. What does the Bible say about what will flow from our hearts? Rivers of living water. If you're full of the richness of the gospel, then man, those rivers will flow. But if you just saw the gospel as something that was applicable to you to transition from a life without Christ to a life with Christ, and you said, okay, the gospel is no longer useful for me, then you won't be full. You will be certainly a Christian, but empty in regards to the gospel. And so it's why when, if you've ever encountered somebody who's going through a really, really difficult time and you've just had nothing, you don't have answers, you don't have anything for them, you can't even comfort them really, maybe it's because you're operating from an empty cup and the gospel has not filled you. It doesn't mean that necessarily that you're going to you know, have all the right answers or anything like that, but the gospel should flow from us to others when we are full with it. We don't also need a Bible degree to teach or counsel, though Paul is telling us here, teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom. He doesn't say, go to seminary and then teach and counsel everybody with the wisdom he gives. First Peter 2.9 very clearly states, but you, and I just want to make it clear, uh, when he's talking, when he says the you here, he's not talking to a group of seminary professionals. He's not talking to a group of people who are only called to be senior pastors or executive pastors of churches. He's just talking to regular people. But you are not like that. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for He called you out of the darkness into His wonderful light. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. You don't need to be a pastor, an elder, or a deaconess to teach or counsel one another. We need the wisdom that God gives to us through the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. We need to know very well how to obtain the wisdom of God and pass it to people. That's all, that, that, that's all we do. That's, that's our goal. That's our job is to get Jesus to people and get people to Jesus. That's our, that's our job, and that's pretty simple to do, especially if you know the path there frequently. If you are constantly going to Jesus and being like, well, messed up again, just want to bring this new thing to you, and well, I decided to pick up this baggage along the way, just want to lay this at your feet, and we go back, and we pick up more baggage, and we go back to Jesus, and so 
we should be really good at getting to Jesus. And so we should be very clear with people and say, hey, I, I can't fix your problems, but I know the one who can. Let me take you to him. He fixes my stuff every day. And that's teaching and counseling people. Sometimes in, in the teaching aspect, it's more of like, okay, this is uh, how we get to God. This is, this is you know, teaching about Jesus. And then counseling is more like, okay, you got some roadblocks. And this is how you get through all of that to Jesus. Uh, it's not our job counseling each other and talking with each other about God. is not about like, well, let me pick that rock up for you and move the, the roadblocks that are in your way between you and Jesus. Because why? The whole time you're picking something up and moving it for somebody, they're moving new things in. Because we're messed up and we're broken people. Jesus is the only one that can do that kind of work. And so we need to get them to Jesus. Paul, again, encourages them to be thankful, to have thankful hearts. When our lives are filled with the gospel and our hearts are filled with thanksgiving, one of the natural outpourings of that is through song. Hopefully you sang some a little bit this morning. Um, And so I hope that... uh, you know the feeling of singing and busting out in song. Uh, some of you might know. Uh, I stand in the front, so not all of you know, but uh, I actually don't have uh, a voice that anybody wants to listen to when, they, when I sing. But it doesn't stop me, and it, it doesn't stop me from singing. Uh, and I, I got to say, one of my proudest dad moments was when I was walking by Killian's, uh, Killian is my son, if you don't know that. Uh, I was walking by his room, and I heard noise, which is not, you know, uncommon to hear him goofing off in his room when he's supposed to be sleeping. And I, I put my ear up to the door, and this kid had just created his own little song. And it was rejoice. That was his, his, his rejoice, 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 as he just was singing that repeatedly in his room uh, without prompting. And I'm like, man, like that brought tears to my eyes. I was just like, man, this is awesome. Because, man, I know I didn't teach that because I don't teach anybody how to sing. Uh, but that just flowed out of him. And, and that was just a blessing to me. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's one of the reasons why he calls us to sing songs to each other and, and to encourage us, each other with that. Um, but before we move on from this, as some of you might know, I love cheesy jokes. So I'm just going to uh, give you one uh, for the future. Do you know why we say amen instead of a woman at the end of a prayer? It's because we sing hymns, not hers. I know, the best joke you've ever heard. Put that one in your toolbox, uh, and you can take that with you. It's free of charge. Uh, I love cheesy jokes. I came across them. I was like, oh, man, i got to use this at some point. And the verse, verse said him, so I had to use it. So, uh, Well, on that sad and painful note, let's move on to verse 17. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Just in case Paul missed a scenario or a sin, and we were thinking that we could finally convince ourselves that it's okay to continue with that sin because Paul didn't list it in either of his groups of five, uh, his two groups of five in in, in chapter three, Paul sums up the whole previous verses by encouraging us to do everything as a representative of Jesus. I don't know if you ever dealt with that problem, but like when someone was like like listing out sins or something like that, I'm like, whew, he didn't cover mine. I guess I'm good. Uh, Paul kind of gives an overarching thing like, everything you do, do it as a representative of Jesus. Notice that Paul also doesn't say, if, as if you were representatives of Jesus. He doesn't say, uh, do everything that you do as if you were a direct representative of Jesus. How many of you would say, I'm a Christian? 
Uh, four of you, awesome. Well, that, <laughs> I need to change my sermon. Uh, man, uh, most of you would probably say I'm a Christian. That automatically makes you a representative of Jesus because you say, that's my flag. That's the flag I fly is Jesus. That's who I represent. That's what my whole life uh, surrounds. That's the center of everything. The reason I do everything is Jesus. And so it's not as if you were a representative. You are a representative of Jesus. For some of you, you're acutely aware of that maybe in your workplace. Uh, I just, again, uh, I went back to my 20-year high school reunion just recently, and uh, I was reminded of the fact that, like, I don't Think, I, don't, I don't think I knew any other Christians in my, in my senior class. Uh, and I got a little bit of ridicule because of my belief in Jesus, my faith in Jesus. And it was like, I was acutely aware of the fact that I represented Christ to them. Uh, I was the standard for them, unfortunately, of what a Christian looked like, how a Christian senior lived and acted. And, and uh, unfortunately, I probably failed in that more than I succeeded. Uh, but I knew that. I knew that I represented him because everything reflected back on what a Christian should do. Uh, if you've never heard that terminology from somebody, um, they see you as a representative of Christ. The way that you treat a coworker, the way that you talk to your spouse on the phone, the way that you treat your family, the way that you interact with your neighbors, like to them, that's how in their mind Jesus would do it because you're his representative. And so it's one of the reasons why people are like, well, I'm going to church because I know, you know, you know, Joe Jabrowski over here and the way I've seen the way he, you know, fought with his neighbor and the whole thing that he did and blah, 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 blah. And, that, and if that's what a Christian is, then I'm not going to church. They saw him as a representative. Think about the last time that someone in church did something that you didn't like. Did you represent Christ well? Think about the last time that someone at work did something that you didn't appreciate. Did you represent Christ well? Do we treat others as Christ would? Does it show through in our work ethic that we are a Christian representative? Do we represent Christ well at work, at home, or just at church? Is that where we say, okay, I'm going to put my Christian uniform on, and I'm going to go to church because I want to make it look like I'm a good representative. I'm going to wear all the colors. I'm going to dress the part, and I'm going to make it look like, man, I'm a great representative week in, week out, day in and day out for Jesus. And we go to church, and we make everything look good, and we go back to the world, and we put on the world's uniform and the world's colors and the world's flag, and we live for us, and we represent us throughout the week. Is representing Christ a way of life for us or something that we feel like we can clock in and out of? They say, okay, clocking in as a Christian, okay, clocking out as a Christian. Here again, Paul encourages us to give thanks. It's almost as if living a life full of Christ can only be done through thankfulness. I don't know if you caught that theme just in these last few verses. Three times, Paul is reiterating, be thankful. Do things through thankfulness. Give thanks through Him to God the Father. So it leads to the question as we close, how thankful were we this week? What were we thankful for this week? And how did we communicate that gratefulness? How did we show that thankfulness to those around us, to ourselves, to our family? Do we communicate when we are grateful? One of the things that I try to, um, I'm trying to really push and, and create as a culture because I'm really terrible at it is the encouraging uh, idea that very often, unfortunately in church, we're really good at complaining about things that we don't like, 
but we don't stop often enough and say, hey, I just want to say, I just want to, I, I really appreciate you for this. I, I see God doing this in your life, and I just, I just want to say it's awesome, and I love to see this happening. We definitely don't do it enough with our kids. I'd love it if we did it more with our kids, too. Like, hey, I see this in you that God is doing, and I just want to encourage that in, in you. I'm thankful for this thing that God is doing, and we communicate our thankfulness. A lot of what Paul covers in chapters, chapter 3 is an issue of lordship. Who rules in our hearts? That will determine much of what Paul is speaking about in chapter 3. A lot of the things he's covered here, if Jesus sits on the throne of our hearts, if he reigns in our hearts, if he is what controls everything, then a lot of this stuff, it becomes second nature to honor him with it. The book I quoted from earlier that I'm reading through, uh, it's about the inherent dangers of pastoral ministry. It's called Dangerous Calling, and it's, like, it's about how unhealthy the culture of, of being a pastor is, unfortunately, across America especially, uh, and how so many pastors are emotionally unhealthy and spiritually unhealthy and everything unhealthy. But I thought uh, another quote uh, from that book was applicable not only to ministry, but to life in many ways. He said, In ways of which you are not always aware, your ministry is always shaped by what is in functional control of your heart. I thought, well, yeah, that's true. I believe that what he says is absolutely true because my ministry is shaped by what is in functional control of my heart because my entire life is shaped by what is in functional control of my heart. To me, it very, very closely uh, uh, reminds me of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. He says, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. So does our language, do do our conversations, when we see somebody throughout the week, do we immediately, within like 30 seconds, begin complaining about, oh, this government, oh, gas prices, oh, you know, is it a complaining conversation because that's what's truly in our heart? Or do we, when we see people, begin to talk about the blessings that God has given us this week? Do we, does thankfulness begin to come out in our language? And Because and, it's very clear that Jesus is saying, what you say flows from what is in your heart. If we are constantly, if what's in our heart is an attitude of like, ugh, then that's what's going to flow. But if we can learn to, to focus on gratefulness and on thankfulness and have Jesus sitting on the throne, then that stuff will naturally flow out from us to others. Take inventory of what flows from your mouth this week. Does it give evidence of the rulership of Christ and thankfulness, or does it show something else is on the throne of our hearts? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. How powerful it is to highlight things in our life which you want lordship over. And God, I thank you for what Paul writes here and and trying to understand what actually rules in our hearts and our minds and uh, lord as we evaluate honestly what naturally flows from us would we be honest with that as we look at uh, what is in functional control of our hearts god and instead of shame this week lord if if we acknowledge that some of these things are not of you would we instead just run to you would we feel comforted in your arms knowing that shame is not from you and that we would simply admit 
that we have failed and we get up and we begin to walk toward you again. And you will meet us there in that place. God, I pray that you would overwhelm us with thankfulness this week. That as we look at the world, as we look at things around us that are happening, would we uh, be so encouraged by seeing your hand at work? Would we count the many blessings that we have? And as the hymn says, name them one by one. As we begin to be reminded of just how good you are. Things might seem out of control for us, Lord, but would you remind us each and every day that you are in control? Would our trust in you be increased this week? That we would know nothing can shake you. And so we would have peace in our hearts, knowing we serve the powerful, risen God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.